You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 and verses 21 through 28. I want to preach to you this morning a simple message that I've entitled, Passover. Passover. When Jesus ate his last supper with his disciples, it was during a Jewish festival called Passover. Passover celebrated the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. If you don't know the story, when Moses and the Israelites were suffering under Egyptian slavery, God inflicted a series of plagues on the Egyptians for them to release the Israelites. In the tenth and final plague, God passed through Egypt to kill every firstborn male. Read this in Exodus chapter 12. Verse 12, this is Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, speaking to Moses, who's to instruct the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. Listen to what he says, verse 12. Ah, God will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord, that's Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all all the gods of Egypt. Now, just pause for one moment. I want you to see this. I could almost hear in response to Moses instructing the people of God that God's judgment was going to visit every firstborn male. People and animals, right? Um, Egyptians or Israelites, it didn't matter. And I could see maybe some Israelites in, in my sanctified imagination say, but we're not the Egyptians. We're not the people that are oppressing others. We're not the people here holding others captive in slavery. But I want you to notice this, just see this. But death and God's judgment was going to pass on all regardless of who they are. This is the one thing every single person sitting in this room has in common with the firstborn males, Egyptians or Israelites, people or animals, is that all of us will die and all of us will stand before God in judgment. I need you to understand that and sense the gravity of that. We deserve God's wrath. But I also want to tell you the good news. This is the gospel. But God makes a way. God makes a way of escape. Look at what it says in verses 23 and 24, real quick. Exodus chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. It says, when the Lord, that's Yahweh, passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood. Everybody say, the blood. It's odd, isn't it, to be talking about blood. And it says the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts. Notice God will pass over the door and not let the destroyer 
enter your houses to strike you. And then look at verse 24. Keep this command permanently as a statue for you and your descendants. So notice God's going to make a way. He's going to provide a way through blood applied to the door of the Israelites' home. And when God sees that blood on their doorpost, he will pass over that home and they will dwell in safety. The feast of Passover, what they're to keep permanently throughout their generations, is the ultimate reminder of God's goodness to his people. And I don't believe it is any accident that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, when he comes to establish the new covenant, and we'll discuss that more as we go, he is going to utilize elements, pieces of the Passover to establish his own meal in remembrance. So Passover was celebrated through the generations so that, the, so that future generations would know what God did in Israel. And here today... We are celebrating the Lord's Supper because now 2,000 years have passed and we want to remember a special event in which God acted on our of our behalves. I want you to see why God instituted the Passover. Real quick, you gotta see this. Look at verse 26 because this is the question I'm gonna ask each and every one of you this morning. It says, when your children ask you, when you get out all the stuff to have this Passover meal, the kids are running around going, hey, mom, hey, dad, what are you doing? Notice what it says. What does this ceremony mean to you? And here's why I want to ask every believer sitting here under the sound of my voice this morning. Not what does Passover mean to you. What does this mean? mean to you. There's three aspects I want us, want us to review about Passover and the Lord's Supper. They both have so many similarities to help refresh our memory about what this really should mean to us. The very first one is found in verses 1 through 6 of Exodus chapter 12. And I'll tell you about how it parallels with the Lord's Supper as we go. Look at verses 1 through 6 of Exodus chapter 12. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. He's about to do a new thing. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, they must select an animal of the flock according to their father's family, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. Number five. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Now, real quick, if you notice how I was reading this, what day were they to select this unblemished one-year-old male animal from the flock? On the 10th. And then notice what it says here. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. Discuss that more in a minute. Let's go to verse 21. 
of chapter 12. This is after Moses gives all the instructions about the Passover. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select an animal from the flock according to your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. So select it and slaughter it. And I want to show you two things about that. The first thing that I want you to see here is we must, one, assess the sacrifice. Number one, write it down, assess the sacrifice. Once they found a lamb from their father's flock that was unblemished, it was as perfect as perfect could be for an animal. Remember that. It was a young animal, a male animal. It was kept in that house or around that household for at least four days. And during that time, no doubt, that family fed, fed that animal and cared for that animal. And here's what I want you to think and put this kind of in the depths of your mind and your heart. For those four days, that little lamb became a part of their family. Maybe even slept beside that firstborn son. And then we know on the 14th day, the importance of the lamb would not have been lost on the firstborn son of that house. That little lamb that had been running through their household and they got to know and love on the 14th day, all the fathers of Israel would go out and what would they do to that little lamb? They would slaughter that lamb. And the firstborn son, there's no doubt he had to recognize that lamb is being sacrificed for who? For me. That lamb that's a part of our household has now passed so that God might pass over our house. When it comes to the new covenant in the New Testament, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, For Christ... Our Passover lamb, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 15.3, 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for our sins. We're not here today to celebrate or to commemorate or remember little lambs. We're here to remember the holy lamb, the spotless lamb the perfect Lamb of God, and may it not elude you, this is Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten Son of God. Do you hear this? The Son of God came to this earth, came and tabernacled among us, put up His family here, so to speak, was here with us. And after three years of ministry, he went to the cross and he died for our sins. May the picture not elude us. He died for our sins so that we might be passed over. That God's wrath may not fall on us at all. That we can live, as Jesus says, and have life abundant. And because Jesus lives, we live. Matthew 26, on that last supper, Jesus says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. 
Jesus wants you to believe and trust that what he did on the cross, the breaking of his body, was the punishment for your peace with God. Take it, eat it, have it all. It's for you. But now, may we never forget the sacrifice and what it caused. Can I show you one other thing real quick? Look at verse 8 of Exodus chapter 12. I want you to notice the elements that were on the table of the Passover meal. And this would have probably been on the table of Jesus' uh, table at the Last Supper. It says here, it says, They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with the unleavened bread. Now, the unleavened bread that's on the table here in the Passover is what Jesus raised up and said, This is my body broken for you, the unleavened bread. And the reason it's unleavened is because leaven would take too long to rise. God was going to execute judgment and salvation so quickly. He said, y'all ain't got time to wait around. Use the unleavened stuff. We'll get to that in a minute. But notice what else is on the table. And bitter herbs. Now, in my sanctified imagination, I couldn't let this go. I find it amazing. I find this amazing that there on the table when Jesus is instituting the Last Supper, there were some bitter herbs. And I never have put this together before. I kind of thought, maybe when Jesus gets to his body, maybe he should have picked up those bitter herbs and said, hey, guys, these bitter herbs are my body. And they're bitter. And they're for you. But here's the unique thing about bitter herbs. The reason the bitter herbs were on the Passover table is it was to remind the Israelites of the suffering that they experienced under slavery in Egypt. And I think the reason, and I can't show this beyond a shadow of a doubt, but I want you to see this. I think the reason why Jesus doesn't pick up the bitter herbs is because he's not here to remind you of your suffering under sin. He's here to remind you of his suffering for your sin. Y'all, we all have a past. We all got a past. But here's what I love about communion. This ain't about us. See, if we really believe what Jesus did on the cross, our past is behind us there's no hey if God doesn't remember it why should we he just wants you to remember his suffering for your sin he loved you so much that he would show it he would suffer for you the taste of true communion let me tell you what communion really tastes like for a genuine believer it's bittersweet it's bitter that our sins put Jesus on the cross. Oh, but it's sweet because Jesus took them away. <laughs> this is a bittersweet experience. So we first assess the sacrifice, the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. But the second thing that we have to see here in this text, let's look at verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10. Look at what it says here in Exodus 12, 7. They... Fathers must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. Now let's drop down to verse 9 because I've already read 8. Verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning, but any part of it left until morning you must burn. Then drop down to verse 13. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I, this is referring to God, see the blood 
I will pass over you. No plague will, come, will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then go down to verse 22. And it says, Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out the door of this house until morning. What, what are these houses covered in? Blood. And you stay under that blood. Here's point number two. Apply the blood. Apply the blood. Ladies and gentlemen, just think about this for a minute. God has provided a way for the Israelites through the sacrificed lamb. But if you don't take that blood and personally apply it to your door, that sacrificed lamb does no good for that firstborn son. The part where it demonstrates their faith in God's provision was not just the slaughtering of the sacrificed lamb and eating its meat. To demonstrate faith that God would really do what he said he would do, that he would pass over the house, there had to be a distinguishing mark, something that separated them from the Egyptians. It wasn't that they were just Israelites, but they had trusted God's word and they put it into action and so they applied the blood. Now why blood? Why is it that Christians can't get over blood? Can I give you just a little theology this morning? In Leviticus 17.11, Leviticus 17.11, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives. Atonement is where we get peace between two differing parties. Atonement is when two parties who can't seem to get it together become one. And what God says here in Leviticus 17, he lets the cat out of the bag. He says the reason I'm letting you sacrifice animals is because that sacrifice demonstrates the significance of sin, that our sin separates us from God. And the only way that can bring us back to God is the shedding of blood. And the beauty, you say, well, where's the grace mixed in? The grace is this, that it's not your blood he's requiring. He's given you a substitute. In this case, in Israel, it's an animal, something from the flock. Hebrews 9.22 says this. This is in the New Covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We have to see the gravity of sin. Sin's consequence is death and bloodshed. God's mercy says it can be somebody else that does it for you. In the New Testament, here's what we find out. Jesus, God's only son, shed his own blood for our sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Let, let Peter, one of Jesus' friends, explain it to you. He says, for you know, he's speaking to Christians, you know that you were redeemed, you were bought back from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, did you catch that? You weren't bought back with something ah, ordinary like silver and gold. He said, you want me to tell you how you were bought back and brought back to God? You were bought with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Can you not let it sink in this morning? The Son of God bled for you. He bled for you. There is nothing more precious in the universe. And he spilt it for you. Romans 5, 9 says this, How much more then, since we have been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him 
from wrath. Did you catch what happened? Because Jesus shed his blood for us, it made us right with God. And so Paul makes this rhetorical question. Do you think wrath then's a problem? The answer is absolutely not. If his blood made us right, then surely he's pardoned us and forgiven and forgotten all of our sin. And Jesus makes it even more explicit. At the Last Supper, in Matthew 26, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says this, Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, the disciples, and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God's own Son shed his blood for our sins, not just so that we can be forgiven, but that those sins can be forgotten, that we can be made right and brought back to God. You can have a relationship with the God of the universe today because of what Jesus has already done for you. The question is this, have you applied the blood? Do you believe it? Will you receive Christ into your life? Will you despise your sin, turn from your sin, and trust Christ alone? See, the Bible doesn't end, and I'll show you here in a minute. It doesn't end with the death of Jesus. It starts off again with his glorious resurrection and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. That he's not dead. He's at the right hand of God and he hears our thoughts and whispers and he is speaking to you today saying, turn from your sins and trust me. Apply the blood to your life and judgment will be passed over. Passed over. So we've assessed the sacrifice. We've applied the blood. And just two last verses, verse 11 says this. Here is how you must eat it. Here's how you eat the Passover, God tells them. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. This is fast food, ladies and gentlemen. It is the Lord's Passover. Look at it here in verse 25. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you're to observe this ceremony. Mm, I'm going to get a little excited. Number three, here's what we got to do. Anticipate the change. Anticipate the change. Eating the Passover while dressed for travel was a sign of the Israelites' faith in what God was still yet to do. He wasn't done, ladies and gentlemen, he wasn't just going to free them from Egyptian bondage. He had a land flowing with milk and honey that he promised them. He says, I got a place for you to go. I don't want you to sit still. I'm not here to overthrow Egypt. I got a new place where you'll live as my people in my land. I want you up and ready to travel. Although they were not yet free, They had to trust God's word that they would be let out and be free. And we too, in the new covenant, we're to prepare ourselves for the fulfillment of God's promises. I love this. God's not finished with me yet. Aaron shared this with me this past week. The church is not about satisfaction, but about sanctification. We're not here to just sit in Egypt going, well, we're not working under slavery anymore. God wants us up and out. 
baptized through the Red Sea, walking through the wilderness of this life until we reach Canaan land. We've got places to go. God doesn't want you to stay the same anymore. And too many of us, we come to this table in the same old clothes we had when we were first saved. Shame on us. He purchased us out to change us and bring us into a place that we've not yet been. Listen to how the New Covenant writers write it. In 1 John, the dear friend of Jesus says this in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. He says, dear friends, we are God's children now. When you repent of your sins and trust Christ as your Savior, you become a child of God. Isn't that awesome? He ain't done yet. Listen. And what we will be has not been revealed. He ain't finished we know that when he appears, when Jesus comes back, we will be like him because when we see him, we will be as he is. So notice what happens. We're already the children of God. Jesus Christ is coming again. And when we see him face to face, we will be resurrected, immortal, incorruptible, and perfect like he is. So what do we do in the meantime? We sit fat and happy in Egypt. Listen to the rest of the verse. And everyone who has this hope Every child that looks out and goes, I'm ready for the appearance of Jesus. Notice what happens. He purifies himself just as he is pure. You know what they do? They change their clothes and they put on their traveling clothes. They start walking after Jesus. They start obeying Jesus. They start loving Jesus. They start trusting Jesus through the wilderness until we get to Canaan. Listen to how Paul put it in Romans 13, 11 through 14. He says, besides this, since you know the time, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. A long time ago, I thought that was the stupidest verse. I thought, I'm already saved. I am, but there's still more to come. He says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. He says the night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't make plans to stay in Egypt. Put on Jesus. Make plans to live for him. That's what he wants. Jesus even ends communion this way. In Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, let this ring in your ears. I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That right there shows you Jesus goes, I'm not done yet. I'll be back. Now that we've assessed the sacrifice, applied the blood, and anticipated the change, what does it mean to you? Let's go back to those little kids. Mama, Daddy, what's this mean to you? Listen to how God actually tells them, this is what you're saying to them kids. <laughs> okay? Look at verse 27 in Exodus. You are to reply, those little kids. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. And then notice what happens after they heard that reply. So the people knelt low and worshipped. If we really have apprehended this right, 
The answer is simply this. Communion moves us to worship. Communion moves us to worship. When we see the broken body, the shed blood, His coming again, Him saving us, changing us, and gloriously promising us that one day we'll be with Him. Ladies and gentlemen, has it not moved your heart to fall down and worship Him yet? I'll leave you with this last word. Before we worship in communion, there is a warning. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through verse 32, it tells us that we can take, we can approach this table in an unworthy manner. Now, all I want you to understand is when we talk about being unworthy, that does not mean that we have to be perfect to approach this table. Jesus is not saying you must be perfect in order to take of this. Because if you think about it, that actually undermines what the, what the meal stands for. The fact that the meal stands outside of us means that we don't have our lives together. We have to go to something. And in this instance, we have to go to someone. One way in which we take, the God, take communion unworthily is that if you haven't repented of your sins and trusted Christ as your Savior, then all this is is just bread and juice. But for those who have genuine faith in Christ, I'm not saying they transform, but here's the point. They have significance and meaning beyond just a piece of bread and a cup of juice. It's that we feel in our souls, we think in our minds, that our sins cause the only Son of God to suffer and shed His blood. That part is bitter, but it's also sweet because He's forgiven us and forgotten our sins. It's actually coming to say this, God, I'm not perfect. And I need you to save me, or I deserve judgment and wrath. And if you'll acknowledge that, if here's the deal, if you have intentions to deal with your sin and to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and you trust him alone for salvation, then celebrate with us. But the second thing that we want to talk about is this. God didn't just save one person. He saved a community of people. Communion is not just about consumption. It's about community. If all it was was, was just, hey, I just got to get a piece of bread and juice, we just line you up as we go out and pass it out. See, he, he brought us all out of bondage to sin and slavery together. He formed a family. He formed a church. And so we need to be right with one another. Now, here's what I'm trying to say is this. Are we going to rub each other and, and get on each other's nerves? Yeah, but here's what happens. When we have a, an offense with one another, we're offended by someone or we've offended someone because we received the forgiveness of Jesus, we are quick to forgive and reconcile with those who've been brought out. And so I'll say it, the other way, the other way in which we can take this unworthy is if you have a brother or sister in Christ right now that you're holding a grudge against or ill will against, then I encourage you to let those elements pass until you can, be forgi- until you can uh, extend forgiveness. Some of you, it's not going to be a matter of coming down the aisle. As I say, it'll be a matter of coming across the aisle going, hey, brother, you know what? We've had this going on for too long. It's time for us to forgive and forget it. And if you'll do that, Welcome to the table. I'm not here. The only, only thing I want you to know, I'm here to fence this out. If you're not a believer, you can't appreciate this yet. I'm asking you to come to Christ. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a prayer in just a moment where you can receive Christ. And if you are a believer, how is your relationship with other believers? And if you have every intention to deal with your sin, to confess it, and to trust Christ with, for your forgiveness, then I want you to know this is for you.
And the question I, I got to leave you with, what does it mean to you? Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.